Welcome to Brokering Different, an uplifting real estate podcast from an upstate broker's perspective. Produced by your host, Matthew L. Thrift, with Berkshire Hathaway Home Services, Cedan Joiner Realtors. Well, hello, everyone. I hope each and every one of you are doing fantastic today. Wanted to discuss with you today my top 10 questions asked by agents. Now, if you listen to my last podcast I did, it was the top 10 ways to let your actions speak louder than words. But today, I'm going to do something special, and I wanted to discuss my top 10 of the, the top 10 questions asked by agents to me as a broker. Now, I do want to say this before we go into this. My disclaimer of these answers that I'm gonna provide you, most of the answers I'm gonna give to you are gonna be standard answers. Um, However, there are often times when the answer cannot be given until further questions are asked. So for example, if a agent contacts me and asks me a question, maybe it's one of these questions, maybe it's another one, I have to then maybe dig into that and ask many more questions before I can give the exact answer. But there are some on here that are going to be, without a doubt, very simple to answer. And you've probably already heard them, you may have just forgot, but we're gonna, just, we're gonna talk about those today. I'm gonna break down the questions that I may have to uh, discuss or ask further questions as much as I possibly can. But without further ado, let's get into number 10. Number 10, my top out of the top 10 questions asked by agents, what is a normal time frame for repair procedure. Now, let me stop right there and say, if you're in South Carolina, our repair procedure in our South Carolina contract in Section 8 is going away on June 13th. We're going to a full due diligence contract. If you haven't heard that, uh, you are missing the boat. You need to uh, you need to uh, prepare yourself because on June 13th, we are going to a full due diligence contract. So when I talk about repair procedure, in just a few more weeks, this discussion is gonna be uh, a mute point at that point. But I get this question asked a lot. What is a normal time frame for repair procedure? And my standard answer has always been about a 10 to 12 day buyer inspection period. 10 to 12 days where the buyer is doing all their inspections, whether it be a regular home inspection or a radon, uh, uh, any sort of other inspection that looking at roof and, and HVAC, whatever, about 10 to 12 days. And then on the second paragraph in section eight, I would always recommend, you know, three to five days for a seller to respond back to the buyer. And then if you notice in section eight, you have a two calendar day decision-making uh, time frame where the buyer says, yes or not, they will proceed or they'll renegotiate or they'll terminate the contract by notice. So basically 10 to 12 days for the buyer inspection period, three to five days for the seller to respond. And obviously it's built into the contract where you have two calendar days. All right, let's go on to the number nine question that I get asked quite a bit. What is a normal time frame for due diligence? As you know, you don't have the three dates in due diligence as you do in repair procedure. You only have the one date. So what is a normal time frame? Well, let's look at that. Let's break that down. If you only have one date to get everything inspected, to get seller to look at everything, to decide whether or not they're going to do whatever it is the buyer has requested, and for the, for the buyer to 
turn around and decide what they're going to do, whether to terminate the contract or proceed under amended contract with a prepare request or proceed under as is contract. I'm going to look at that and almost the same way as what we looked at repair procedure. I'm going to look at it from a time frame of it's going to take you a certain amount of time, maybe 10 to 12 days to have all of your inspections done. It's going to take the seller a few days to decide what they're going to want to do. And then you really need to give yourself two, at least two days after the seller response and remember in the repair request, there is an expiration of that repair request. That's the date that you're going to give and you need to make that expiration date at least at least two to three days prior to the expiration of the due diligence date that you have in the contract. So so breaking that down again, 10 to 12 days, maybe maybe you can get it done in seven to 10 days, seven to 10 days uh, for, for buyer inspections or 10 to 12, whatever you want. Give the seller two, three, four, five days to figure out what they need to do and then give your buyer again, two to three days to decide what they're going to want to do because if they have to terminate that contract, you do not want that expiration of that due diligence expiring because that will push the buyer into an as-is contract. So again, that's number nine, what is a normal time frame for due diligence? Looking at number eight, number eight, what is a normal termination fee for due diligence? Again, what is a normal termination fee for due diligence? Well, I can say this with all sincerity. There is no normal termination fee for due diligence. Is how much is a buyer willing to pay to play? Meaning, how long are you going to take that person's property off of the market? Maybe it'll be more of a termination fee if you have to take it off the market for 15 to 16 to 20 days. Maybe you only want it off the market for two or three days. Maybe the termination fee will be less than that. There is no such thing as a normal termination fee. Um, obviously with South Carolina not having a full due diligence contract now and we're getting ready to go into it in June 13th, I'm get, I'm, I, my, my thought process is we're going to be seeing uh, things change uh, very, very quickly uh, within uh, just a few months about what what we're going to start seeing a normal termination fee for. I mean, we're in a hot market, and so if somebody wants to do an as-is contract, which means we, we don't have as-is in the contract anymore, but you can do an as-is contract with due diligence by making maybe only a one or two day due diligence time frame with a high termination fee, basically, and if the buyer never puts in a repair, repair request, the contract automatically goes to as-is. So there's multiple things that you can do with your termination fees, whether to make it an as-is contract or whether how long it's going to be off the market, that's going to decide on your termination fee. So it's just going to all depend. That's one of those questions that you've got to break down a little bit more before we can answer to find out how what, what your buyer should put down. And this is information that you should be sharing too. You know, when they ask you what they should be putting down, you need to dig into those questions. Well, how long do you want to take it off the market? Are you wanting to be an as-is contract so you have a stronger offer or whatever the case may be? All right, number, question number seven. What is the best way to write an offer in this market? What is the best way to write an offer in this market where almost everything is selling for over asking price? You got multiple offers. Let me break this down for you very quickly. This is not gonna be a long, long interpretation of this question. Okay, when you're writing an offer for a buyer in this market, you need to break down what is important to the buyer and the, 
and the structure the offer with the most fitting terms for that buyer. Break down what is important to the buyer and then structure the offer with the most fitting terms. If you have a buyer that can put down a larger uh, earnest money fee, if you've got a buyer that could put down a larger termination fee, if you have a buyer that wants to go only as is, if you have a buyer that doesn't care about the the, the, uh, the appraisal and they wanna do a appraisal gap, if you have a buyer that doesn't care about the financing contingency because they don't need it. I mean, there's all sorts of ways that you're gonna have to break this down that will make you have a stronger offer over somebody out there, but it all depends on the terms that they're looking for. So again, when you ask or when an agent asks, what is the best way to write an offer in this market, break down what is important to the buyer and structure the offer with the most fitting terms for that particular buyer. All right, the number six question that I get answered, number six, how much money is normal to put down for earnest money? Well, let me just say, it's very difficult sometimes to use the word normal in real estate because every transaction is different, every buyer is different, every seller is different, all terms are always different, okay? So it's very difficult to use normal. But what I see as a broker is typically at least $1,000. Now that may change depending on if it's a cash offer or if it's a VA buyer that's 100% loan. Um, because I wanna make one point clear, earnest money is not necessarily a factor to have a ratified contract. There's a disbelief out there or a belief out there that uh, you have to have earnest money for a ratified contract. That is simply not true. There's nothing in the law that states that. A buyer and, buyer and seller can do a contract all day long without earnest money in South Carolina. I don't know about your state, uh, but in South Carolina, it is not a requirement of the contract. So there could be a contract with zero, turn, zero earnest money, however, we all know that that may not be the greatest and strongest offer. People like to have some, or sellers like to have buyers that know they have some skin in the game. So normal earnest money, very difficult, but you know, at least $1,000 if it's a cash offer, maybe 1%, maybe 10%. I will, I will say this though, um, there is, at least up in Greenville, uh, we have a $7,500 limit that what would go from summary court up to magistrate's court, okay? So the $7,500 limit, if you put down anything $7,500 or under and there's a dispute between parties, it's gonna go to summary court. If you go, if, if it's over $7,500 and there's a dispute, it's got to go to magistrate's court for that to get mediated or decided upon the court where that earnest money is gonna go. But that's beside the point, just make sure um, you know, if you're doing that, if you're looking at around the $7,500 mark, you may want to have that knowledge and information to pass on to your buyers. But how much money is normal? There is no normal. Um, what can your buyer do? What's going to make them the strongest offer? And, uh, but you know, I wouldn't probably go less than $1,000 typically. All right, number five, the number five question I get answered, and let me kind of start it out like this. You know, my deal is falling apart. The parties are arguing over who gets the earnest money. Here's the question. When can I return the property back to active status? This is a very common question that I get asked. Well, here is my typical answer. The property can go back on the market Obviously, if there is our South Carolina Form 518 that is signed by all parties, the Form 518, the conditional release of agreement to buy and sell between parties, if that is signed by both parties and box four is checked that earnest money is in dispute, once that document gets signed, 
Both parties have agreed to remove the contract terms, and nobody else is liable for anything other than the earnest, yeah, the earnest money. Then you can put the property back on the market once everybody has signed that. Now, there is another form out there called Form 313, the Notice of Termination. That is a unilateral one-party release. You do not need the other party's permission. And there's a few times in the standard Form 310 that it says terminate the contract by notice. Now, there could be times where a buyer could terminate that could be that they could be found in default for terminating. Okay, well, I'm not gonna get into that in this question. Okay, but if a party puts in a notice SCR Form 313, by the way that that document is written, that contract is dead. It's null and void. Now, um, I would I would caution anybody putting the property back on the market just with the use of the Form 313, and here's why. The Form 313 does not release parties from liability and obligation. It's just strictly a termination of the contract. So if one party wanted to take the other one and pursue litigation on them, it would be not in your best interest or in your client's best interest to put that property back on the market if there's a pending litigation or lawsuit. As a matter of fact, I believe you would have to update your seller's disclosure to say that that could be possibly happening or is in the process of happening. So my recommendation is if a Form 313 is submitted, um, that at least try to wait until the contract expires and once that contract expires, it is now dead and you can put the property back on the market. At least that's the way I've always looked at that. Now mind you, again, my disclaimer has always been, I'm not an attorney. When these things do happen, it's always good to seek an attorney's advice. But the way I uh, give advice and answer this question is, if you have a Form 518 and it's signed by both parties, even if the earnest money is in dispute, once that Form 518 is signed, you can put the property back on the market. When the contract expires, if somebody has pulled out with a Form 313, um, especially when, again, when the contract expires, you can put the property back on the market. I would, again, want you to seek legal advice. If you only have a notice of termination Form 313, and if there's anything pending out there, I, I, would, I, would, I would caution and say, you need to have your client, your customer, reach out to legal counsel and advise them on that. So that's how I would answer that question. Hopefully that helps. And we'll move on to question number four. So number four, if my buyer's home inspection comes back with something major, can they walk away and get their earnest money back? You do not know how many times I have gotten this question right here. And I'm gonna repeat it. If my buyer's home comes back if my buyer's home inspection comes back with something major, can they walk away and get their earnest money back? Well, let me say this. There's a lot to that. First of all, if you're in repair procedure, your buyer must go through repair procedure. They have to submit a repair request per the contract. They have to give the seller the opportunity to respond then the buyer has the opportunity to have two, two, day, two calendar days to decide what they wanna do. Mostly this question comes when a home inspection comes back and the buyer automatically gets cold feet because they think something may be major and it's something that the seller can fix. 
And even if it's, you know, thousands of dollars, we don't know what that seller is willing to do. And the buyer will put the cart before the horse many times and say, oh, I'm just not trustworthy that the seller is going to do it and do it right. I'm too scared. I want to pull out. Well, at that point, that could be considered a default if they don't walk all the way through the repair procedure. So the intent of the contract, especially in repair procedure, is the inspection is done, the seller's given the opportunity to repair. If a seller says no to one of the nine systems known as seller paid repairs, if they say no to that, the intent of the contract is for the buyer to terminate the contract and the intent and the, the, the spirit of it is to be able to get their earnest money back. However, in South Carolina, it is very, very clear that the only way earnest money will be returned to the buyer is with a formal, rele formal re release between the parties or by a court order or voluntary mediation. I mean, that's the only way. And so if there's not an automatic ever return of earnest money ever, even in the new due diligence coming up, just because your buyer would put in a, a, a due diligence uh, notice of termination and termination fee, I am not going to tell any agent that there's an automatic way that earnest money is going to come back. It's just we cannot say that. So I'm going to caution anybody telling any buyer that their earnest money automatically comes back. No, that's the intent of the contract. That's the way it's written. That's the way it's supposed to be. But if, a, a, if another party wants to challenge that, they have that right. And until a release is signed by both parties and an agreed upon or a court of competent jurisdiction says where it's going, there is no automatic return of earnest money. Oh my, comes the number three right now. And golly, I get this question a lot. Number three question, do I need a transaction brokerage agreement for a customer? Do I need a transaction brokerage agreement for a customer? So um, in, 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 in my brokerage in Berkshire Hathaway Home Services, Cedar and Joyner Realtors, our policy is a transaction brokerage agreement is required when that customer or that party is responsible for compensating you, the agent, and slash the brokerage for the services rendered. So here's the hypothetical, here's the example. If you're helping a buyer customer and they've asked you to help them purchase a property and they're not yet a client and there is a for sale by owner out there, the for sale by owner uh, say, says that they will cooperate with you and, and they will compensate you for bringing that buyer. That for sale by owner is going to sign a transaction brokerage agreement with you in order to compensate you slash the brokerage. The buyer at that point, if you're getting compensated off of the, if the for sale by owner is paying your fee, you would not need a transaction brokerage agreement with the buyer because the seller for sell by owner or customer is actually paying you. So you wouldn't need it with the buyer, but you would need it for the with the for sell by owner customer. Now, a lot of times this comes up where it's on your own listing. Your listing, you have the seller, the seller is a client, and then a buyer calls you and you are not comfortable with doing dual agency. So at that point, you have a buyer customer that wants you to, to put in an offer for them. You still don't need a transaction brokerage agreement because the listing agreement guarantees your compensation. So going back to what the original question was, do I need a transaction brokerage agreement for a customer? 
Sometimes you will. It's going to all depend on whether or not that customer is the responsible party that is paying your compensation. And moving on to question number two, which I get quite a bit. Here it is. Is it better to do dual agency or only have a customer relationship with the buyer on my own listing? The way I'm going to answer that is, what is your comfort level as an agent? Are you comfortable enough to be able to be the represented agent to advise both clients on a limited nature? And you're going to need to know what you can and can't say. You're going to need to know what you what you need to stay away from. Okay, so personally, I don't particularly care for dual agency, even though it's legal in South Carolina. I want to have full ability to represent my seller client, if it was my listing, full 100%. That's what they signed up for. Maybe they said they would look at dual agency if it was presented to them. Maybe they did, but I may be the agent that says, no, I'd rather just be 100% devoted to my seller client. Even me as a broker, I just find that that is the safest way to do a real estate transaction when you have full representation for one party. Now, I will I will consistently say if you want to write the offer on behalf of the buyer for liability purposes, I think it would be in your best interest, especially if you're not comfortable, to have the buyer as a customer. But I just need every agent to understand that that customer cannot get full representation. And when you start going into advising customers, you may be in violation of agency law when you start doing your advising. So just be very careful about that. Study that. But if it's a comfort level on behalf of the agent in particularly, whether it's better or not to do dual agency on your own listing or have a buyer customer. And the number one question that I as a broker get asked, and it's multiple, multiple times a day, if I were to give you three guesses and say the first two did not count, you could probably guess it. But I'm going to give it to you right now. The number one question is this, are you busy? Are you busy? Well, you know that my, my response to that is always, well, of course I'm busy. I'm a, I'm a broker in charge. However, I am not too busy to make sure that I am taking care of the agents that are associated with my license, making sure that I'm handling their needs and requests, okay? One of the most awesome scenes that I've ever seen in a movie, and you're gonna find this really crazy, but one of the most awesome scenes that I've ever seen in a movie was the movie about Mr. Rogers. Tom Hanks played such a wonderful character in the movie, uh, It's a Beautiful Day in Your in Neighborhood. And when Lloyd Vogel, the, the, the guy that was interviewing uh, Mr. Rogers, they were talking on the phone and Mr. Rogers specifically asked Lloyd Vogel, do you know what, Lloyd Vogel, do you know what the most important thing in the world to me right now? And, and Lloyd obviously said no. And Mr. Rogers came back and said to him, the most important thing in the world right now to me is talking on the phone with Lloyd Vogel. Talking on the phone with Lloyd Vogel. And, you know, I, I looked at that. I looked at that as a broker and I said, you know what? That is exactly the way I need to be. Yes, I may be busy doing uh, paperwork. Yes, I may be busy doing broker stuff. But when an agent text messages me, when an agent calls me, when an agent stops by my office, 
I want to be that broker that makes that agent feel like at that time in their life, they are the most important person in my life right now at that time. I want them to know when they come to me that I give them my undivided attention, whether I'm busy or not. I want them to know they are important. Their situation is important. No matter how small it may be, they are the most important thing right then and there. So it doesn't matter whether I'm busy or not. When an agent comes to me, when they call me, when they text message me, they need to know they are the most important person in my life. And if I've done that, I feel I've done my job to the very best I possibly can. Listen, I hope you guys have enjoyed this uh, top 10 questions uh, to me as a broker. Hope it gave you some insight. Hope it taught you something. And I'll look forward to the next time we have a Brokering Different podcast. Take care, everybody. God bless. And we'll see you around the real estate corner. You've been listening to the Brokering Different podcast with your host, Matthew L. Thrift. You can find me on YouTube or visit my webpage at www.matthewthrift.com. Until next time, friends.